Welcome to Election Profit Makers, everybody. It's a podcast. <laughs> you can listen with your ears and appreciate with your mind. This week, we're doing something different. The entire episode is just one single interview. How crazy is that? Welcome to the Insane Asylum. We're talking to one of my favorite people. It's Astra Taylor. Astra's documentaries include Zizek, The Examined Life, and What is Democracy? Her books include The People's Platform, Taking Back Power and Culture in the Digital Age. She also wrote Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone, which is one of the best ever books about democracy that also kind of sounds like a Morrissey song title. And from last year, her book is Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions. Astra is also an activist who's done lots of work with something called the Debt Collective, which we'll be talking about today. Uh, so whenever I talk to Astra, I always come away feeling kind of inspired and hopeful. And, you know, things are kind of grim right now, and we're entering the season of doom and gloom, commonly known as winter time, which also comes with a bouquet of something called seasonal affective disorder. So John and I basically thought now might be a nice time to talk to her. John, are you ready for this conversation with Astra Taylor? I am. Okay, here we go. Astra, welcome to Election Profit Makers. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. You should know that John and I are a couple of take-no-prisoners bad boys. We specialize in no-holds-barred, anti-PC talk radio-style um, provocations. So I hope you're ready. Oh, I can. I'm ready. Okay, good. Um, you and I met a while ago now, and we met in the context of something called the Rolling Jubilee and I wondered if we could start this conversation by you just giving us some background about sort of the, the theory and the history of debt cancellation. Before we get into what you're working on now, can you kind of set the stage for what this stuff actually is all about? We met about 10 years ago. This is almost like our decade anniversary, probably. You should have brought champagne. And yes, we... we roped you in, and by we, I mean a kind of nascent debt resistance movement that came out of Occupy Wall Street, roped you in to being the host of a telethon, a live stream telethon, to promote this thing, the Rolling Jubilee. What was the Rolling Jubilee? Um, it was a groundbreaking entity initiative to buy debts that were for sale on the secondary debt market just like debt collectors do. But instead of collecting on them, instead of calling innocent people and harassing them at all hours of the night and threatening them and lying to them, as many debt collectors do, we abolished them. We erased them with no strings attached. The way I remember it is you can't cancel a particular person's debt. You are buying a big mystery black box of debt. Yeah, so when you're buying the debt, you're buying these portfolios, you know basic things like what's the value of the debt, how many accounts, but you don't have their individual info until you're the owner of the of the debt, which really, you know, it's literally just getting a spreadsheet, an Excel spreadsheet. Like that's what that's what we're talking about here. People own the spreadsheet, and that means they own a piece of you. They own your future because they're demanding this money from you. So once we get the spreadsheet, yeah, we write. And our letters are both a kind of, we you know, always begin with like jubilant greetings because it's a rolling jubilee. Mm -hmm. Your debt's canceled. You don't owe us anything. But by the way, we think this debt was fucking illegitimate and shouldn't exist. And that's why we're doing this. And if you want to learn more, you know, come to the website, join us, et cetera. 
Um, but that, you know, it's, it's just that act of doing something that we hope helps people and also blows their mind, you know, because so often the letters we get in the mail, you know, stress us out and, and just remind us that we don't have enough to make ends meet. Yeah. You know, and that we remind the public that, yeah, these debts can be renegotiated. They can be eliminated. Like, things don't have to be this way. This is a, in a way, was a play on a very old concept. The idea of Jubilee is is ancient. It goes back to the Bible. It goes back to ancient cultures where there would be periodic debt absolution and people would be liberated from debt peonage and debt slavery. And so it was a um, sort of modern play on this very old uh, concept. And it was inspired because we were at that time, right? It's 10 years ago. We were coming out of the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis. Millions and millions of people had lost their homes and the economy was in shambles. So people lost their jobs. Uh, The statistics now are something like 50% of the wealth of black families, families was evaporated. More than that for Latino families. So people were really struggling. And so what we wanted to do was have a bailout by and for the people. That was one of our taglines, a bailout by the people. So the banks had gotten bailed out. Taxpayers had paid for it. Their debts had been written off. So we wanted to do the same for people. And for us, it was a big shock. This wasn't something I had known previously, that when a debt collector calls you and says, hey, you need to pay up on that ambulance bill, you need to pay up up on that medical debt or that credit card bill, that person had nothing to do with the service you're paying for, right? Like they're... Those, the debt has been written off by the original holder. And they got a, they've got a tax write-off for that. It was sold, you know, for fractions of its paper value. And then somebody's trying to collect the full amount. So we were trying to raise questions with the Rolling Jubilee. You know, why do we have to pay those debts? Why are they written off to other people but not to us? And we wanted, you know, just to bring us back to that moment, the last thing I'll say is we, we had a very modest ambition. David, if you remember, I think we wanted to raise something like $50,000 so we could buy a million dollars worth of medical debt and make a statement. And it went viral before our telethon even began. Ultimately, we ended up raising something like $700,000 through crowd-funded donations. And we, yeah, we raised over $33 million of medical debt, probation debt, payday loans, and private tuition debt from people who went to predatory for-profit colleges. And we used that last debt purchase to jumpstart something called the Debt Collective, which is a union for debtors that through political organizing has actually won billions with a B, billions and billions of dollars of student debt cancellation uh, and is now in um, you know an ongoing fight with the Biden administration to, to push them to keep their promises. So debt cancellation, you know, as long as there has been debt, there has been debt cancellation. And it's often an economic and social necessity. Why in the ancient times did people have these jubilees? was because actually it was to avert social crisis, to avert economic disaster, and also to rebalance the power between sort of creditors and regular people. You know, debts that can't be paid won't be paid. And so there's just a kind of economic rationality to our demands, which is like, you know, things are out of hand. People need a break. Rich people walk away from their debts all the time. Let's give little guys a break too. One of the ways in which the Rolling Jubilee Project sort of rewired my brain was the revelation that debt was bought and sold like any other bundled asset for pennies on the dollar, a lot like the mortgage packages that wound up in, you know, in part causing the financial crisis. When you have debt, it's such a personal, emotional, psychological thing that you carry with you. A lot of times you associate, I, you, I mean, for me with debt, sometimes 
you know, you associate it with shame or a sense of being constrained. And I liked how the project would take that very personal sort of interior thing that a lot of people don't feel comfortable talking about because there's shame associated with debt. But, and then contrasting it with the fact that at the other end of this exchange, at the other end of this relationship, you have people who obviously are just seeing the debts as bundled assets. David Graeber, the great anthropologist, the late and great anthropologist who actually spoke at the telethon and was sort of one of the originators of the Rolling Jubilee, you know, like often pointed out the fact that in many languages, the word for debt and guilt or shame are actually the same. Uh, and, you know, in German, the word for debt and guilt are literally the same, they have the same root. And that shame is part of the sort of ideology of debt, right? The fact that it's stigmatized is part of what makes people, exactly as you say, reluctant to talk about it. It also compounds the suffering because then it's not just a source of economic uh, suffering, but psychic suffering. So we know that there's just so much research that debt's actually a public health crisis, that it stresses people out in body and mind. I definitely see it in the organizing we do. I see people at the end of their ropes. We've had people threaten suicide over their debts. You know, we know taxi drivers in New York City who just put up a big fight for debt relief for killing themselves over the debts they owed. So this stuff is a matter of life and death, for real. And exactly as you say, there's the flip side to it. Our debts are somebody else's asset. This is a profit center. And there's more and more economic research about this because what happens is there's a kind of economic paradox happening where people have to borrow in the present to survive. Why? Because they're not paid enough. If minimum wage is $7.25. You literally can't live, right? So you're robbed by your boss. Then you have to borrow and pay interest and fees you know, to, to close the gap. But the, every one of those payments you're making on that money you've borrowed is actually enriching the proverbial 1% on the back end. It's a very sort of Rube Goldberg kind of extraction machine that ultimately just compounds the problem of inequality that we're that we're dealing with. So it's a it's a mechanism of it's it's a, a mechanism of inequality, a driver of inequality. So debt both reflects and drives uh, various inequities. It's very racialized, it's gendered, all these things, right? Because of course, if you're black, if you're a woman, you make less money on the dollar, so it's harder to pay off your debts. You have less intergenerational wealth to to so therefore you have to borrow more. All these things. So I think those 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 reframes are really powerful. When we were doing the Jubilee, that was a lot of the focus there was on medical debt. And I think that was something that a lot of people can relate to, especially because the health insurance situation in our country is somewhat less than ideal. Now it seems like you focus more on student debt. Can you talk about why you made that transition from medical debt to student debt? Yeah, you're exactly right. We began with medical debt because we thought it was the easiest reframe, right? Because nobody chooses to go into debt because they have a health problem. I mean, last... Last week, I had to go to the dentist, and I remember thinking, like, oh, what am I going to find out tomorrow, you know, that I need, like, $4,000 of work? Do I need a root canal? You know, I mean, this isn't—it's so far from the stereotype of, like, putting a flat-screen TV on a credit card, right? And to, to dig into that stereotype of credit cards, the main thing people put on their credit cards in this country are medical bills. So a lot of what we call credit card debt is actually medical debt. That's because that's you, you have to pay for your treatments with the swipe of a plastic card because we don't have health care. It's not all flat screen TVs and effects pedals. No, you know, if only, if only the fact is people overwhelmingly put necessities on credit cards, overwhelmingly use payday loans to like pay their rent, you know, to, to avoid homelessness and really dire outcomes. So medical debt seemed like a, a thing 
you know, that was where we could challenge the sort of public imagination around it. The problem is because of our system, it's actually very hard to find a kind of central target to get to a structural solution. We have a piecemeal patchwork system with all sorts of hospitals. Some are nonprofit, many are private. Many nonprofit hospitals let private equity firms run their emergency rooms. Then you have right. all the different insurance providers. You have all the different private equity investors. You have all the different this and the that. So it's like, where is the centralized target to deal with this? I have some ideas that I'm hoping we can do as an organization in the coming year. But student loans, in contrast, are very centralized. About 90% of student loans are federal, federally secured student loans coming through the Department of Education. What does this mean? It means if you went to Harvard or you went to the University of Phoenix or ITG Tech, your loans are the same. The, the, the financial guts are the same, even if you went to, a, whether you went to a prestigious school or you went to, you know, a community college. And that is immensely powerful because it means our target is the federal government. And it means that there can be all these, this kind of solidarity between different types of debtors, debtors who might not see themselves as necessarily having things in common. Also, you know, parents, if parents take out loans for their kids, they have the same Ultimately, they're in the same lending structure. So it's it's nice as an organizer thinking strategically to have a centralized target. What the Debt Collective has figured out through our years of organizing around this, and we, we launched the first ever student debt strike, we're working with students of a predatory for-profit college, is that actually also the federal government has legal mechanisms, it has the legal authority to cancel these debts outright. So the first thing we discovered was that if schools defraud or lie to their students, that those students have the right to a debt discharge. So that's how we have won billions of dollars of debt cancellation. Mm. You focused on schools that turned out to be scams? Yeah, I mean, so all for-profit colleges are scam schools. The thing is, you know, we talk, when we talk about the college experience, the college green, and we think of people going to Harvard, you know, most of them don't graduate with debt because of Harvard's intense endowment and the fact that the people who go there are rich <laughs> or they're like legacy admissions, you know? Most students who are working class, who are people of color, are funneled into these for-profit colleges that serve hundreds of thousands of students, again, they're getting federal student loans, they're getting that money, and they're leaving students worse off than if they had never attended school in the first place. They're not even schools. They spend all their money on marketing and not teaching. So yeah, that's who we began organizing with. But through those campaigns, we, we found out that through the Higher Education Act of 1965, guess what? Congress already gave the Department of Education and the president the authority to cancel all federal student loans. So the mechanism is there. We wrote a letter. That wait, I'm sorry. That feels kind of significant. It's very significant. Congress has already granted this authority. This isn't going around Congress. This isn't like trying to trick Manchin and McConnell. This is like, no, it was intentionally designed so you have the authority to issue and cancel debt. Flashing back five years, we wrote a letter thinking Hillary Clinton was going to be the president. <laughs> telling her about this authority and saying, you know, this is an authority you can use to cancel student loans. At the time, it was a very, to call it a fringe position, is inflating it. Well, guess who's on our team now? Chuck Schumer, Elizabeth Warren, AOC. These people are all very clear that this legal authority is real. And in fact, guess who used it? Donald Trump. Guess who used it? Joe Biden. How did they use it? To cancel the interest as part of the COVID student loan payment pause. Ah, they took baby steps. They, uh... Oh, they regret it. They regret it because now they're like... Why did we let people know we could do this? Right. So this, I think it's really interesting, you know, going back to our meeting and our roots in Occupy Wall Street, you know, we were always told out there, you know, get a job, take a shower, 
this and that. I mean, what we've, what we've become effectively is the policy arm of the federal government. We've done all of their homework on this and said, no, actually, this is what you can do. Didn't you guys literally draft an executive order for Biden to sign? Yes, we literally drafted the executive order. All it will take is one signature from Joe Biden to cancel all federal student loan debt. We've done all his homework for him. And again, this has been, you know, these arguments are now um, embraced by Schumer and Warren and other leading uh, advocates, including people at Harvard. So, So why hasn't Biden done it? I mean, Biden can do it. What do you think's holding him back? You know, I think people are so invested in the ideology of debt. Uh, I mean, Joe Biden is someone who spent his career as a kind of carrying water for the financial services sector. Delaware guy, mm-hmm. credit card companies. And we all know Delaware, right? You get those Delaware letters in the mail and you're like, oh, this is a credit card notice. <laughs> right. That's what it is. And so he, you know, was the, he famously, you know, led the charge on the 2005 bankruptcy reform bill. And this is, this is a bill. He, it's hard to overstate how much muscle Joe Biden put into passing this thing. It repealed bankruptcy protections for people who have private student loans. It also, according to research, caused the kind of initial baby wave of subprime uh, home foreclosures preceding the deeper and bigger mortgage crisis. Um, and so I think you know, that's where he comes from. And But I think there's a kind of real ideology among people of a certain class who don't want to redistribute wealth. They want to, they want to, they just love this idea that education will get us where we want to be, right? If we can just get people into schools. And of course, you don't want to pay for co- public college. <laughs> you want to have people pay for their education with loans so they, quote unquote, you know, have skin in the game. But the fact is, you know, what that has done is created the conditions for this for-profit educational sector. It has indentured a generation of people to the point where it's inhibiting things like family formation and home ownership, which is basically a fancy way of saying people can't start their lives. They're too busy paying off these debts. Um, so it's actually, you know, sort of hurting the economy writ, writ large. It's deepening inequality in the ways we discussed because your debt payments are just sort of enriching people on the other end. Um, and so there's kind of a deep reckoning that needs to happen where you go, this actually, like, we made some major mistakes here in the way that we not just approach education, but the economy. And, and the problem is maybe it's a lack of good jobs. Maybe it's a lack of wages. Maybe it's not the lack of bachelor's degrees, you know, that's causing um, a lot of our sort of economic woes. So I don't know. I mean, I think that's, I think it's, you know, actually we're up against some really big um, economic and ideological forces. Right. The ideology of debt and the and the narrative of college is a great investment. And if you want to get in head in life and achieve the middle class dream, you go to college and maybe you'll take out some loans, but you'll pay them off because you'll have such an amazing job because you went to college. That was so much of the environment that at least John and I grew up in. Mm-hmm. And it feels so embedded in America that when I first saw Chuck Schumer start tweeting about canceling student debt, I honestly thought I was looking at like a left-wing parody account that you guys had started. <laughs> I mean, Chuck Schumer, like the most, I was, I mean, how did that happen? That's what I was like, holy shit, they're doing it. These crazy kids are really doing it. They got, they yeah. blue-pilled Chuck Schumer into talking about canceling, like tweeting, Schumer tweeting at Biden to be like, we should cancel the debt. You could do this today. Oh yeah, and Chuck Schumer, you know, credits the debt collective. We've, we've met with our friend Chuck <laughs> and had these conversations. Um, it's really, you know, 
it, it's quite interesting. I mean, it, I think what you're saying about the generational thing is really real, you know, and I, I caught the tail end of, I think, a, of the time when it, it paid off, right, when that social contract still sort of held. And at this point, it doesn't. And it, it really doesn't if you come from a working class family uh, or if you come from a family that is not white. That's not to say there aren't a lot of white people who are being screwed over by student debt, but you know the statistics are incredibly shocking. It's like, on average, a white borrower can start to chip away at their debt and slowly does make inroads, whereas for black borrowers, you know, they're stuck with this compounding interest and so ultimately end up owing more 10 years out or 20 years out than they did at the point of graduation. This is why the whole conversation about you know, debt cancellation is so twisted because like lots of people have paid off the principal. They have paid. Right. It's the interest that's killing them. And that's why we reject the language of forgiveness. We never use debt forgiveness. You haven't done anything wrong if you've gone to the hospital to go to the emergency room. You haven't done anything wrong if you've gone to get an education because you've been told right. that's how you achieve the American dream. You deserve right. justice, which is debt cancellation, having the same chance somebody of Joe Biden's generation had. And let me tell you, that guy did not graduate with student debt. I mean, I had, I, I did some research and called up the University of Delaware, you know, and he paid something like $1,500 to get a law degree. <laughs> You're such a nerd. You called the University of Delaware to see how much Biden's tuition was? I got to know what grandpa paid, you know. All right, all right. I, re I, respect, the do I respect the dorkiness of your debt hustle. So we understand now, it seems like, the ideological reasons or maybe uh, the the issues of a certain generational sensibility or a certain Delaware financial ecosystem that might prevent Joe Biden from being excited about canceling student debt. But here's the thing. This podcast is about betting on political outcomes using our actual money. John and I do not have any principles. We don't have any ethics or morality. All we care about is making money. That's why you podcast. So my question is, if Joe Biden canceled student debt, would that help him politically? If I was going to invest in a market about Biden's reelection, which right now looks kind of dicey, if he was to cancel student debt, say, maybe between now and the next presidential election or between now and the 2022 midterms where it looks like Democrats are going to get their asses kicked, would that help endear the Democratic Party to voters or would voters be like, why are they just throwing away more free money at these lazy bums who won't get a job after they broke their ankle and went to a fake college? Here's my thing is that before you answer this, I just want to jump in and say, I see people using the fact that rich white Ivy League people are going to have their debt canceled as a way of shitting on this proposal. And they say, why, why would, uh, yeah, why do we want someone from Harvard getting their debt canceled and they're already rich? It's quite interesting because how the stereotype changes because, you know, back in the day when David and I started doing this, you know, it was always the artist. You shouldn't have majored in underwater basket weaving right. with a minor in CRT. Now I got to pay off $100,000 for you weirdos. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they just, they've changed the argument now. And now it's like, well, what if a doctor gets their debts canceled? And which is always, a, that's a really interesting one to me. Or what if a lawyer gets their debts canceled? And the point is, actually, we want doctors to be able to become general practitioners and to be able to go work in rural communities. <laughs> we actually want lawyers to be able to go be public defenders and not have to go work in the corporate sector. There's literally a crisis of dentists in this country because dentists are working in urban centers so they can pay off their hundreds of thousands of dollars of dental school debt. So 
there's a kind of social consciousness we need to bring to the table here. The other thing is, to go back to Harvard, undergrads from Harvard just do not graduate with student debt. I mean, the statistics are overwhelming on this point. They literally have family wealth. They're either paying for it or the enormous endowment that Harvard has is, is paying tuition. So the kind of myth of the Ivy League student with debt is exactly that. It's a, it's a myth that really ignores the economic and social realities. 40% of people who have student debt never graduated because they just couldn't financially make it work. They're probably working two jobs. Maybe they were working three jobs. They didn't have parents to help them out. So when we talk about who student debtors are, I mean, a lot of them are people who have the the burden of student debt without the supposed benefit. They have the mortgage, but they don't have the house. Yeah, the mortgage without the house, exactly. That's a reality we have to face. I mean, this is another kind of more pithy way to say it, but student debt is already means-tested, which means people who actually have means, who are affluent, don't take out student loans. Their parents pay for them to go to school. By virtue of borrowing, it's showing that you needed to do so. So that's a that's a powerful argument for this. I mean, on the whether it will help the Democrats, I think overwhelmingly, yes. I mean, polls show that this is something that appeals to Trump voters. There were um, one in five Trump voters said that if debt cancellation was student debt cancellation was on the table, they'd vote for a Democrat. Something like 40 percent of black voters said that if debt cancellation doesn't happen, they'll sit out the election. I'm sorry, but the Democrats cannot afford that. Um, There are also just ways that you can talk about this issue that would shift us away from these sort of con- this concern trolling about rich people getting right. their debts canceled. Matthew Iglesias and and folks, yeah, yeah. But if you like, what if what if they went? What if the Democrats went out there and went? This is going to be great for the economy. All that money that's right now just being sent to the Department of Education will be spent in local businesses. It will you know, go to helping people buy houses, which will like be good for the building trades. You know, there's so much evidence that increases entrepreneurship when people get their student debt canceled, it helps them take more risks. They actually end up making more money and paying off other debts because they're not as constrained by these obligations. If we could start putting that social argument forward. So for example, the Debt Collective organized with various city council members, and we've gotten over a dozen cities to pass resolutions calling on full student debt cancellation for the good of the city, right? Like saying this would actually be a boost for our entire community, not just the people who would be literally getting their debts canceled. That's awesome. Yeah, it's good for us when our neighbors aren't, you know, getting um, evicted. (laughs) It's good for us when our neighbors aren't getting foreclosed on. It's good for us when our neighbors can pay their bills. You know, we all benefit. I would love to see Democrats you know, lead with the powerful economic, moral, and social arguments um, uh, and then see how the public responded. Because right now, with all of the the bullshit they're saying, it's still really popular. Think about how popular it could be if they were actually framing it um, in the way it deserves to be framed. Right. Or if we had some good communicators. Unfortunately, I feel like, can Biden get out there? and make, I mean, imagine Obama. Whatever you think about Obama, he was a great communicator. I feel like this was the type of thing, and maybe we weren't there yet. But this is the type of thing that he could sell. But we really weren't weren't there yet. I mean, not a dollar of student debt was ever canceled until the debt collective came along, right? I mean, they were talking about slightly tweaking interest rates. Obama did bring a lot of the student lending in into the Department of Education. In other words, to like, you know, um, give it that centralized quality that we're talking about. But when you think about just how radically off the radar it was under that administration and the fact that now we have mainstream figures like Chuck Schumer and dozens of other senators 
saying this. You know, I think— um, I mean, it's really wild, Astrid. The fact that Chuck Schumer is taking this up, I mean, and I don't know, to, you know, talk is cheap. I mean, how did you guys do it? Did you just work like 100 hours a week and like take any meeting you could? I'm kind of obsessive. <laughs> so like, I mean, you know, the, the, the folks who were there in those days when we were planning the Rolling Jubilee Telethon, a core group of us have really stuck with this and grown, you know, into growing this organization. Because we always knew, even during those early days, we couldn't buy any race, all the odious predatory debt out there, that we'd have to build debtor power and lobby and think of these creative legal strategies. And we've just really stuck with it in a in this tireless way. And I think beginning with for-profit colleges, which are the most predatory and extreme of these cases and, and making those inroads. Guy. Yeah, and really showing, you know, and winning, winning not just debt cancellation, but changes to federal law. So we were part of this whole rulemaking session, which is how they determine the mechanism, like the sort of precise means by which people can assert their rights, legitimized our demands. And in fact, there's lots and lots of articles out there, you know, saying Elizabeth Warren in particular saw that debt cancellation was legitimate because of our campaigning with these students from Corinthian colleges, which was this predatory for-profit chain. So I think demonstrating, you know, not just that these ideas deserve a hearing, but that they're actually doable, you know, it was, um, was really game-changing. And of course it's doable because again, rich people walk away from their debts all the time. You know, last year when COVID hit, what did the government do but rush and give billions of dollars of debt relief to corporate debtors, Exxon, Walmart, payday lenders, small businesses got forgivable loans. We know debts are negotiable. Donald Trump called himself the king of debt. That's right. <laughs> you know, I mean, so what we're trying to say is let's spread that around a bit. Let's be a bit more equitable here. Um, and and I think because we were on politically on the fringe, right, I mean, we had a sort of shamelessness about it. I think just saying, no, we don't want an interest rate tweak. No, you know, we don't want slightly less predatory terms. College should be free. Student debt should be canceled. That resonates with people. That moral clarity resonates with people. And this is one problem the Democrats have. They have many problems. But one is they just love to talk about these, these they love to talk about these little tweaks, you know, that don't get people going. <laughs> I would love to have a means-tested 1% APR adjustment for everyone who agrees to go volunteer in the inner city for two years after graduating from right. a liberal arts college in Ohio. But, you know, you can use that money to also leverage against your future earned income child tax credit, revision 6.3, which everyone in my district is completely stoked about and can't stop talking about. <laughs> so how do you day so upbeat with this type of incrementalism that you see that's pervasive from from the party i'm i would be very frustrated and pessimistic at this point does that mean you are frustrated and pessimistic yes i yes i i am I frustrated am and and you seem extremely upbeat and positive and that uh that makes me feel good and i'm just wondering how do you do that I think John and I mistake crushing despair for political action. Doom scrolling Twitter is like my chosen form of activism. Right. But you seem to have, I, yeah, why are you so well-adjusted and, and upbeat? Like, what the fuck, Astrid? Yeah. You know, it's so funny. My, poli- my my true political ideals are so out there. You know, I'm for, like, full vegan communism. And so there's such a disjunction between, like, the world I want to live in and the world as it exists. Um, but I don't know. I think there's something about my personality. I have this, you know, 
sideline, right? Writing about ideas and making films about philosophy. And I, I guess I, I, I have this sort of core conviction that if you're not trying to put your ideas into practice, that you're kind of full of shit. Oh, fuck me. <laughs> I, I'm like, if I'm going to talk about economics and how the world should be, I'm going to try to do it. And, and there's um, camaraderie. I mean, I think that was one thing for me. Why Occupy Wall Street was such a, a pivotal thing after the sort of 10 years of the aughts where there was no social movements, right? And it just felt so oppressive. It was kind of finding people of like mind who wanted to try crazy stuff. Um, and at that point, you know, we, we talk about this a lot, but there was a protest that I, I wasn't part of this. I, I joined a little bit later, but some comrades of mine planned a protest called One Tea Day, the day student debt surpassed $1 trillion. And it was written up in Reuters by NPR. And the, re the response was scathing. It was just like, the government is never going to cancel student debt. These people are so naive. You know, one expert laughed. <laughs> and I think, you know, in a way, yes, it's incrementalism, but now we're like, hey, it, you know. It's happening. It, like, we're doing it. Yeah. If a small group of us can push this one issue this far, imagine what would happen if more people actually got organized and did this kind of combination of working on the public imagination, of really asserting these bold moral claims, and then doing their legal homework, and also being willing, without losing you know, our scruples, to play an inside game. Like, I think, you know, mm -hmm. I think we're doomed. <laughs> if people don't oh, okay. act. But if people act, then you know, we outnumber, we outnumber them, whoever they, you know, the 1%, the people who are kind of corrupting our political system. And so that's, yeah, it's funny. I, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely of mixed minds on this. You know, I, I see that organized people can get results, you know, and I see what inroads we've made. Uh, I also totally see how far we need to go because it's not just about canceling student, like just even limiting ourselves to education. It's not just canceling student debt. We need to make college free, but not just free as in price. Free as in liberating, right? Like, what would what would it look like to decouple education from the pressure solely to get a job or just be able to fucking like survive? Right. That is something our society is not ready for. The Democratic no. Party is not ready for that. Yeah. But you know, we, we need to start putting those demands on the table. If people want to learn more about the work you guys are doing, the Debt Collective, where do they go? www.debtcollective.org or Twitter. Promise me you also doom scroll a little, right? Oh my God, I doom scroll. I doom scroll. Okay. Yes. Oh, good, good. I feel less guilty now. <laughs> Do you watch Dana's uh, Netflix crime dramas? No. Okay. Uh, I think that was great. I don't have anything else. John, did you have any any last questions? I, no, I don't. But I don't. David, I do. We... We have to talk about how we revived the Rolling Jubilee this year, though. Is it still active? Are you still rolling? After we spend down that $700,000 that we raised because of your amazing emceeing. Mm, I'm not sure. I think it was some other people involved. Somebody from Star Trek tweeted it, and that's where our troubles began. It was Will Wheaton. Yes. It was my man Will Wheaton helped blow it up. He's yeah. a good guy. Yeah. So after we spent that money down and Botany raised, you know, 30-odd million dollars of debt, we put into hibernation, worked on the debt collective, but we've revived the rolling jubilee because we're in another economic crisis, right? The pandemic in many ways is similar to what was going on uh, back then. And so we have, um, we have been buying and erasing debts. There's going to be a lot more to come, but on the first of this month, we announced, for example, that we had sent letters to 20,000 people living in Mississippi and Florida, telling them that their probation debts had been canceled oh. um, outright. 
as a gift from from the Debt Collective and the Rolling Jubilee. Uh, we heard from tons of those folks. You know, basically, not only did they get their probation debt canceled, but now they're not under the threat of being rearrested because they can't pay or because something goes wrong. And so we'll be making a series of pretty exciting debt abolition announcements through the spring of next year. That's so cool. Yeah, so it was $3 million of probation debt belonging to 21,000 people. Wow. Perfect. All right. I'm good. I think we got everything we needed. That was great. Awesome. I'm getting on a call now because we're going to be erasing some people's debts, but that's secret. Boom. There you go. Interview concluded. Thank you, Astra Taylor, for joining us on Election Profit Makers. You held your own against the bad boys. We have to say respect to Astra Taylor. You can support us on Patreon. Astra, if you're listening, but everyone else can also support us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Election Profit Makers. It's a fun hangout spot, I suppose. The Discord is certainly off the chain. The website, again, for the Debt Collective is debtcollective.org. And their Twitter account is at Strike Debt. Election Profit Makers is a Radio Point production with executive producers Alex Bockridge, Corson, and Daniel Powell. With help from Houston Snyder and Kat Iosa. Send your election prediction questions to contact at electionprofitmakers.com. And also, when you go to Twitter to follow the debt collective at, at Strike Debt, why don't you also give John Kimball a follow? At John Kimball, that's J O N K I M B A L L. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or Spotify or Overcast or Discogs or Reverb.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, maybe leave us a review on Airbnb. That could be fun, too. Yeah. <laughs> Go to hell. Go to hell. That is funny. Okay, I like bye. that. I, that's good stuff. Okay, bye. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. The illusion of us not I still know. being in I the know. Same it's room. hard. I can't get to you because you're it's screaming. Too intense.